Well, good morning again. Um, good to just worship with you this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to be hanging out to this morning. The verses will also be up on the screen if you want to look there. Um, if you want to look at the Bible app on your phone, however you would do that. Um, use the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, um, man, I would just... Take one of those pew Bibles with you. That's our gift to you. Just say thanks for being here. Um, if you want a nicer one, there's some in the lost and found out there. So you can grab one of those um, later as well. You might have to scratch somebody's name off of it though. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so we, we kicked off a, a, this series a, a few weeks ago. Um, and, and we're walking through the, um, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And um, one, of the, one of the things that, that Paul is doing here um, throughout this letter is, is he is reminding the church there in Ephesus uh, about who God is. Um, he is trying to, to remind them that, that this is the reality of the God in whom we worship. And, and, and that he said, and we talked about this last week, that, that the greatest pursuit in our lives is to know God more. Um, that, that, that is, is, is the, the driving force behind the Christian life, is to know God more and more and more. And so, and so, so what, what I wanted to do, so we, what we did last week is we kicked off a 21-day challenge where I, we just said, hey, we just want to seek the Lord together. Um, we want to we seek a move of God in the foothills, um, and we just want to desire him and grow in our desire for him. So last week we kicked that off, and, and so what I thought would be good for us this week, um, if, you, if you haven't jumped into that 21-day challenge, um, I would encourage you on the way out today, we have a handout for you. Um, you it's not too late to get it, jump in and be a part of that. Um, and what we said was, hey, we want to intentionally um, and, and, and prioritize our relationship with God for the next 21 days. And we just said, God, I want more of you in my life. Um, and so we said, hey, we want to pray specifically um, for that. We want to uh, spend time reading. And so we're just, hey, we want to read a chapter out of Ephesians every day um, for the next three weeks. Um, and then we said, hey, we want to prioritize gathering with the body of Christ together. Um, and so, so as we go into week two, um, here is the, the prayer for this week. Um, and, and it's this, it's God, I need you. Increase my awareness of your presence. Awaken in me the ability to believe deeply that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in my life. And so, so let's, let's pray that together um, this week. I'm going I'm to just pray this over us, um, and then we will jump into our teaching text for today. So Jesus, oh Jesus, you're so good. Um, you, you're so kind, so gracious, so loving. And, and I just, I pray, Lord. I pray for, for every single person here and the ones that aren't here, that you would awaken us to the reality of who you are. That, that, that your presence in our lives, not just on Sunday when we're here, but, but, but throughout the week, Monday through Saturday, would be so evident. It would be so evident that we could not help but believe that the same power that raised you, Jesus, from the dead is at work in our lives. And so I pray, Lord, that you would awaken us to this reality. Let, let us not just go through the motions of this, ne this next week, um, just doing life as usual, but, but let us seek you with our whole heart, desire you more than anything else in this world. And so I pray that over our church, I pray that over our lives, and may we seek you together. Jesus, we need you. We can't do anything apart from you. In Jesus' name.
Amen. So uh, we're in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. We we have moved on from the introduction here. And and Paul um, begins and he's continuing to remind the church in Ephesus who he is. And so so I'm going to read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit as we go here. Um, And so this is what Paul says to the church in Ephesus starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, "Once, Once you were dead... Because of your disobedience and your many sins. Welcome to church. Um, uh, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Right off the bat here, Paul says, hey, once you were dead. And he's not talking about a physical death here. He's talking about a spiritual death. Um, that, that because of our sin, because of our sin nature, because of our rebellious nature towards God, that made us spiritually separated from God. And when we're separated from God, we are separated from the source of spiritual life, the source of life itself in God. And so because of our sin, we have been separated from God. We are spiritually dead. We are spiritually dead. This is what Paul is reminding him. Say, hey, this is who you once were. And so why does our sin make us spiritually dead? Well, if you, if you go all the way back to Genesis, right? Um, you could go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, and this is what it says. It says, but the Lord God warned Adam, him being Adam, that you may freely eat of the tree of, uh, of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat this fruit, you are sure to die. That, that before sin ever even entered into the world, God warned us that the consequences of sin is separation from him and death. And death. That from the very beginning, Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. That sin, doing things our way instead of God's, Doing things our way instead of God, God's has always earned death, has always earned death. And you may be like, well, well when Adam and Eve, they ate that fruit of the tree, they, they didn't immediately die. And I'm like, you're right, they didn't. But what happened? Well, well God, well, they, they were naked, right? If you remember that, and they had tried to cover themselves with some leaves, and God was like, hey, that's not sufficient. So he killed an animal in their place, and he covered them with that, the, the animal skin as clothing. The animal had to die as a substitute for Adam and Eve. Sin has always earned death. Sin has always earned death. And so Paul is reminding the church in Ephesus here of that this is their status before Jesus. That this is their status before God, before Jesus comes into their life, that you were once dead because of your sins and your disobedience to God. Now, this goes against the grain of everything that feels normal and right and that we're taught in our culture, right? Like this goes against the grain of everything that we feel should be true, our culture tells us that we, um, that, 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 mo- that we are basically good people, that everybody's basically a good person, that, that, that at worst we are morally neutral, and that if we just believe in ourselves, if we just try hard enough, and we just make the right choices, then we can do anything we want, anything we set our minds to. And while... And while I think people who are not followers of Jesus can do some incredible things because of common grace of God, from art to sports to music to humanitarian work, like we can do good things because of God's common grace, even if you're not a follower of Jesus. But 
But apart from faith in Jesus, you can never make yourself spiritually alive. You can never make yourself in right relationship with God through your own efforts, through your own efforts. Isaiah would, the the prophet Isaiah would say it this way. He would say that our best works, our best deeds, apart from God, apart from faith, are as filthy rags because they are marred and they are scarred by our sin nature. That, that, That we can't do good in and of ourselves because even our best deeds, our our motivation for doing those things is selfish in nature. That we are dead in our sin. That we are dead in our sin. So why why are we this way? Why is this who we are? Well, he says this in verse 2. He said, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is, the, he is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Verse 3, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. So Paul impacts here three different reasons that, that, that we are this way. And the first one is that we have been deceived, number one, by our, our, our culture. We have been deceived by our culture. Number two, we have been deceived by Satan himself. And third, we have been deceived by our own sinful desires. We've been deceived by our own sinful desires. The culture, Satan, our enemy, and yes, even our own desires deceive us and seduce us into filling our lives with things that are immediate, alluring, and entertaining, and never with things that give our life true meaning, and purpose. Though though this path seems right to us oftentimes, it only leads to a cycle of frustration for us. And so, and so track with me for a second. Um, this is what we talked about a couple weeks ago in, 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 in Ephesians 1. We said that we are wired for worship. That, that you and I have been made to worship. Like you go to a concert, you, you go to a football game, and you have um, men who have painted their bodies, and, and they're, whoa, hello. Just, just making sure you're awake this morning. Um, and so we, we, we are wired and made for worship. We are made for worship. Worship is a natural and intuitive impulse wired into us by God himself, Worship is a gift from God. But what happens, what happens is that oftentimes we take the worship that was meant for God, that was given to us from God, for God, and we take that worship and, and instead, oh, are we, do, do I need to switch mics, Eric? Are we good? I'm just going to keep going for now. Oh, nope. Just keep going. Just keep going. Switch mics. Okay, we'll switch mics. Okay. Hello, hello, can you hear me? This is live TV, um, so you never know what's gonna happen. There we go, okay, so let's roll. <laughs> we were made for worship. Man, it's hard to come back from that. So um, it's good though. And, it, and just so you know, this is not Eric's fault. We've been fighting this for a couple weeks, so Eric's doing a great job back there, um, just so you know. Um, so we were made for worship. God wired us for worship. But what happens is instead of using the gift of worship that God has given us for him, 
we instead begin to spend that worship on his creation rather than him, the creator. We, we, we try and just take God's stuff and run. We say, God, I, I, I want you for the benefits you bring me, but I don't actually want you. And this, this is at the heart of all sin. The heart of all sin is a worship issue, is a worship issue. And all of us are guilty of this. All of us have at one time or another thought, our way is better than God's. All of us have, have thought our, our plan is better than his. We have failed to acknowledge God for the gifts he has given us, while at the same time doing that with the air and the lungs that he has given us to breathe. It's the great blasphemy of the universe. That God, us, that God created us and then instead of worshiping him as God, we then take the stuff that he's given us and we we take our lives and we say, I'm gonna do what I want because I think I know what's best. In this essence, we're saying we think we're smarter than God. It's like, okay, God, I know you created the universe. I know that you have always been and you will always be. I know that you are infinitely wise and infinitely rich, infinitely power. But you know what, God? I don't know if you've quite figured it out how this works over here. I think I'm going to go this way instead of your way. And I know none of us would ever say we're smarter than God, but that's how we practically live a lot of times. We live as if we understand how life works best instead of trusting in the Lord with it. This is, what, this is what our flesh, our desire has tempted us into. This is what the, the enemy, Satan, has tempted us into. This is what the culture is tempting us into. It is trying to say, okay, God, I don't need you. Instead, I can be my own God. And Jeremiah 2 actually tells us that all of the rest of creation actually shudders in horror that we do this. It, 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 it talks about how, how it's, it's terrified that, that God might actually rip the universe to shreds because of our sinfulness, because of our blasphemous nature in going against him. Thank God we serve a patient God. Instead, we have this infinitely valuable, infinitely deep, infinitely rich, infinitely wise, infinitely loving God. And instead of pursuing him with steadfast steadfast passion, instead of loving him with all of our beings, instead of truly worshiping him and him alone, most of the time we just try and take his stuff and run. And this is idolatry at the heart. And listen, listen we, don't, we, we can look outside of Scripture. Like, we can go to a lot of places in Scripture that, that, that point to this reality, but we can go outside of Scripture. Like, and here's how I know this is true, okay? Um, my kids, um, uh, anybody grandparents in the room? Grandparents? Yeah? I hear it's like the best thing ever. I don't know yet, but we'll, we'll find out hopefully someday. Um, it's like you get to you get the, give the kids back, right? Um, uh, when they, but anyway, so... So my kids, um, I remember when they were like probably like two, three, four years old, um, they were real little, like they would, um, grandparents would come to town and like all good grandparents do, they, they would spoil my kids, right? Um, they, would, they would give them gifts, they would give them candy, like it was like, like all rules went out the window when grand, grandma and grandpa came to town. Um, and, and my kids though, they, they, there came this point where, where my kids were so excited when grandparents were coming to town, not because of the grandparents themselves, but because of the gifts grandparents brought. And as soon as they would come in the door, my kids would be like, hey, what did you bring me? 
They, they weren't excited to see my, see my parents or, or, or Kayla's parents. They were excited for the stuff that they got from them. And, and I didn't have to teach them that. I, I, I didn't have to teach them that, 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 that they liked stuff more than they liked people. Like that was in them already. Like I, I didn't have to teach my, my kids to push other kids down and steal toys. Like there was never a moment where Kayla was like, I walked in one day and Kayla was like, this is how you steal a toy from another kid. Like that just wasn't a thing. Like that was in, in them from the beginning. That was in their nature. And this is how we often treat God, by our nature. By our nature, we have been deceived by the culture and Satan, and yes, even our own desires to walk down this path. And creation shudders at this. Since Adam and Eve, all of humankind is guilty of this. And so how does God respond to our blasphemy? This is what he says at the end of verse three. He says, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger. This word anger can also be translated wrath. That we were subject to God's wrath, just like everyone else. Just like everyone else. God's wrath is eternally displayed through what we would call hell. And I know hell is wildly unpopular. Nobody's like, man, I'm so glad I came to church today. We're hearing about hell, right? Like, like there's no part of me that's like, I know it's going to grow the church. We're going to talk a lot about hell. Like, like that just, like nobody is excited about talking about hell. But, but we have to because it's here, okay? That God's wrath is eternally displayed through eternal torment in a literal place, eternity, eternally separated from God in a place called hell. And so, and so, so you may be thinking that surely I don't believe that there's a literal place of torment called hell. That, that surely I couldn't believe that. And we don't have time to get into all of it today, but, but scripture is very clear that this is a very literal place. Jesus talks about it more than he talks about heaven. But let me tell you why this is such a big deal. That according to the Bible, everything good and perfect is a gift from God. Which means that everything that brings comfort, joy, and pleasure are all, are all gifts from God. Hell then is the absence, is the absence of all good things that come from God. It's the absence of God's goodness. Hell is the absence of God's goodness. This is, this is, this is not, not every, there's no laughter in hell. There's no good food in hell. There is no common grace in hell. That it is the absence of God's presence. That this is not a good thing. It's, 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 it, it is the absence of all things that are good, right, comforting, joyous, happy, peaceful. It's a terrifying place. No laughter, no joy, no comfort. And Romans chapter 14 tells us it's a place where torment goes up forever and ever. And Paul is telling us here that we are all guilty, that the smallest amount of sin, even the, the smallest amount of sin is worthy of this eternal separation from God. That the wages of sin is death. This is what he says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. That the wages of sin is death. That this is what our sin has earned us. That this is the just and right response to the smallest amount of sin. It, it absolutely is. 
But what I have found is that most of us believe that ultimately all things will work out in the end and that God, if he's a really loving God, he wouldn't do such a thing as that. That most of us that most of us actually belittle our sins thinking they're not really that big a deal and in the same time belittle the God of the universe. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 12 tells us that there is a way that seems right to a man and in the end it leads to death. It kills him. There's, there's a way that, that we think life should work and the way that we think life works best and in the end it kills us. And so God responds to the belittlement of a name. He responds to sin with hell. But here's where hell is insufficient. Here's where hell is insufficient. And I know that that's a weird sentence. But at the end of the day, hell does not produce what God is after. God is after worshipers, and hell does not produce worshipers. No one who is guilty celebrates justice. No one who is guilty celebrates justice. When you're guilty, you celebrate grace and, and, and mercy. Only when you're innocent do you celebrate justice, and we are far from that if we're honest with ourselves. And so God responds with hell, but, but hell is insufficient to produce what God is after. And so listen, I, I, I don't believe you can scare anyone into heaven. Like, I remember as a kid, um, like, like this, is, this was a tactic in, in the church I grew up, I, I th- and I don't know if it was intentional or not, I think it was probably some good motivation behind it, but it just didn't come out very well. But it was like you, th- they would ask a group of kids, hey, do you want to go to heaven with your mom and your friends and, and ev- all the good people in the world, or do you want to go to hell where there's fire and torment? And, like, and what, what kind of choice is that to a kid, right? Like, ah, uh, I think I'm going to choose heaven, <laughs> Right? But, but I don't think that you can scare someone into heaven. Heaven is not a place for those who are afraid of hell. Heaven is a place for those who love God. We can scare people into a lot of things. We can, I, like, I, we can scare people into doing a lot of things. We can scare people into to being a good moral person. We can scare people into to giving money. We can make people feel guilty if for, for, to do certain things, and we can manipulate people in that way. But I don't believe you can scare people into loving God. You just can't do it. And so, so I hope you understand that my hope today in talking about hell is not to try and scare you into heaven because I don't, I don't think it would actually work anyway. My, my, my hope is to never guilt you into anything, but rather my hope is to, that, that we can lay out for the truth of, of who God is and what he has done for us. And in light of that, that we would respond in faith and that we would love God because of his incredible greatness and love with which he has loved us. And so why does Paul spend so much time talking about our sin nature and God's wrath towards it? Because we have to feel the weight of our sin. We have to feel the weight of it or we won't know the weight of God's kindness and grace towards us. We won't know the great cost that he paid. And we won't be able to worship him in fullness. So, Paul finishes this section and then he transitions here with two of the most theologically significant words, I think, that are in all the Bible. Like, I, I think, I, like, there are some places in Scripture where you see these two words, and I love them every time. They're the big butts of Scripture, right? And here it is in verse 4. He says, but God. 
But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much. But God, that the God was not okay with where we were. He wasn't okay with the path we were on. He wasn't okay with us being eternally separated from him. He wasn't okay with that, and he was so rich in mercy. And he loved us with such great love that he decided to do something about it. That you and I were once defined by what separated us from God. We were defined by our rebellion. We were defined by our sin. That our sin had made us spiritually dead, made us eternally separated from God, made us objects of God's wrath. But God, being so rich in mercy, he's defining the character and nature of God. That he doesn't just have a little mercy, he has mercy in abundance. He doesn't have just little love for us, he has love for us in abundance. He's rich in mercy, abundant in love. And Paul is reminding the church here in Ephesus and you and me that while God is just, right? So God is just, he is also merciful and gracious and kind and loving that it was on the cross that we see God's divine justice and his divine mercy being on display simultaneously. God cannot allow, remember, God, God can't allow the belittlement of his name, and so he responds with, 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 with like, we deserve wrath, that that is the just response. And so instead of pouring out his wrath onto you and me, he pours it out onto his son Jesus on the cross, as a substitute for you and for me so that we can now be made right with God. We can be reconciled in right relationship with God through Jesus. That God demonstrated his love for us in this way. He sent Jesus, his one and only son, to come to the earth, to die on the cross as a substitute, poured out his wrath meant for you and for me onto Jesus and in so doing, God demonstrates his perfect justice towards sin and his mercy towards loving and love towards sinners like us. This is what he did. This is what he did. Look here as we keep going here. That God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. So God can point to us in all the future ages as examples of God's examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Listen, can I just tell you something? Jesus did not come to this earth to make bad people good. He didn't come to make mean people nice. He did not come to to simply make us a, a cleaner version of ourselves. Jesus came to this earth to make dead people alive. Those of us that were spiritually dead, he came to make us spiritually alive in Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, this is what Paul says, says, in Christ we are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And that nobody is outside of reach of God's amazing grace. 
that we are no longer defined in our lives. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are no longer defined by who others say we are. We are no longer defined by our sins of our past. We are no longer defined by what our mistakes say we are. We are no longer defined by our shortcomings because we are now defined by the amazing grace and mercy of Jesus, which he demonstrated towards us. That in Jesus, we have been declared righteous, sinless, redeemed, reconciled, free. That it is Jesus who now defines us. And he defines us as ones who are alive in him. That God is the initiator and the perfecter of our faith because he loved us with such great and expansive love. Like God is the one who came after us. Not the other way around. Like, like look throughout here. He says, but God. It says, God gave, God raised, God united. He has done for us that while we were still his enemy, Christ came for us. Well, before we even knew we needed him or wanted him, he came for us. That before you were ever even born, as we read a few weeks ago, that he thought of you and he came to rescue and redeem you. How is this possible, though? Who is this for? Well, look with me in verse 8 and 9. It says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so that no one can boast about it, so that no one can boast about it. Salvation is sheer grace. Salvation is sheer grace. It's a gift. It's not about being a good enough person. Like you cannot be a good enough person to make yourself right with God. Like I don't care how many good things you do. Apart from faith in Jesus, you will never be made right with God. It is sheer grace from God for us. It is a gift. Well, what, what is the only thing that, when somebody gives you something, right? You, you have to receive it, right? All gifts must be received. And God's grace through faith in Jesus is a gift that must be received. And it's a gift with no strings attached. And the question is, is will you receive it? Will you receive it? The only stipulation for receiving this gift is you must reach out and take it. Listen, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it is for every single person who would believe. And when we believe, when we are saved by grace, not because of the good things we've done or not done, not because we do this, don't do that, but because of what Christ has done and accomplished for us, through his cross, through his death and resurrection, because of that, we now get to live a life to him. This is what he says in verse 10, that because of salvation, For we are God's masterpiece. This word masterpiece here in the original language is is a lot of people believe this is actually where we get our word uh, poem 
from, um, flows from, from that original word. It says, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. For we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. For we were not saved by good works, but we were saved to good works. We weren't, we weren't just saved to, to, to then uh, continue sinning. But no, as we are saved and as we grow in our love for God, that we become more and more like him, that we live our lives for his name and for his glory every single day, submitting to him more and more and more. I mean, think about the most beautiful sunset, sunrise you've ever seen. Think about the most beautiful picture, the most wonderful song that you've ever heard, the most incredible piece of poetry And I would say that this is nothing with the masterpiece that God is forming in his people around the world. I mean, just think about the diversity. Uh, Like like sometimes I think we think, well, Christianity is just here in America. Well, no, no, Christianity is a, one, it started in the Middle East, okay? Um, And it is a global, it is a global phenomenon, okay? And there are followers of Jesus in every country around the world. I believe that there are believers in every country, in every language, in every tribe, in every nation, and this is the beautiful masterpiece that God is putting together, that this diverse group of people is being brought together. I mean, just think about this room alone, the, the, the different backgrounds that we all come from, the, the, the different, the different uh, socioeconomic status we all have, the, how, how different we all are, how we all may be different in certain ways, shapes, and forms, and yet God is molding us and bringing us together to form a beautiful masterpiece. That this is what God is doing. And it is all by his grace. It's all by his grace. And what Paul is saying here is that as he is molding us into his masterpiece and as we begin to grow in our love for Jesus more and more and more, as we do this, that people everywhere, every day will begin to see and know and understand who Jesus is by the way that we live our lives. That, that when our lives become worship of God in the everyday mundane stuff of life, that when, when I wake up in the morning and I go to work, right? Like people should be able to experience Jesus through me at work. That when I go to, um, when I go to do my hike around the neighborhood, the people I interact with should be able to see and experience Jesus, that, that when I do, um, when I interact with my neighbors, when I interact with um, people at the grocery store, the everyday, boring, mundane stuff of life, that people of, all around us should be able to see and experience what Jesus is doing in our lives. And this is what Paul is calling us to here. That you, he's reminding them that they have been saved by grace. It's not about what they have done to earn God's salvation, but now that they've been saved, as the way in which they worship God, it, inter, it flows out into every area of their life. That in every way, shape, and form, people are able to see and know and experience Jesus in them and through them. Let me see if I can help you understand it this way. Um, Let me tell you a story. In in the early 1970s, um, in West Texas, um, there was a woman in her late 30s. and, And this woman, she... She had just gone through a divorce. She had four kids. 
and her ex-husband and who, whom she had just had a, had a divorce with, right? Like, he, he died suddenly of a heart attack at 45. She was going through a, a challenging season. She was working a lot of hours at a local dry cleaners trying to make ends meet. She was struggling without hope. She was unable to kind of navigate and figure things out. Then one day there was a, a man from, from a church just down the road who came and knocked on her door and just, just was kind and gracious and loving towards this family. They ended up inviting them to church and, and then they went to church and, and when they were there, they, they heard the good news of Jesus's grace that had been extended to them. They, they heard about the gospel, the good news. And this woman, she, she put her faith in Jesus that day. She put her faith in Jesus. Not long after that, her youngest son puts his faith in Jesus. And their family was forever changed because of the grace of one man who somebody had brought the good news of Jesus to him and he extended that to someone else. And this is an important story for me because this is my story. That I, I stand here today because somebody knocked on my grandma's door. And because she put her faith in Jesus, my dad put his faith in Jesus. And my when my dad put his faith in Jesus, it changed everything for him. And he prioritized for us as a family, being at church and, 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 and learning about Jesus. Like my story doesn't just begin with me, my story begins with my grandma and God's grace towards her, which was extended to my dad and now extends towards me. Like you want to know the extent of God's grace in your life and, and you just begin to look back in your story. You begin to see that God's grace was coming after you to have you sitting here today. God wanted you to hear this today. I don't know what brought you here. I don't know how you got here, but, but, but it's God's grace towards you. He wants you to know that he loves you. He wants you to know that he came to rescue you and redeem you. He doesn't want you to be spiritually dead and separated from him forever. He wants you to, to be made new and be made alive in him. It's by grace. It's not about being a good person. It's about faith in Christ alone. Last month, I, I got to go back to Texas and officiated my grandma's funeral. And I didn't really know that story until then. And I, I remember my dad showed me her Bible. And on the front, you know, some Bibles you can have special dates and, and whatnot. And, and there's the date in, in 1974 where she and my dad took the step of faith of baptism together. And so, so my, my question for today is really, what's your story? What's your story of God's grace in your life? Do you have a story? Do you have a point in time in your life where you said, God, I, I can't 
I can't make my relationship right with you through my own efforts. Jesus, I need you to save me. So if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes today. With, with nobody looking around but me. The, the question I, I think that we all must answer today is just say, do you have a story where God saved you? Do you believe that today, right where you sit, that God is coming after you? And so, and so if you're here today and you'd say, Marcus, I've never, I've never begun a story, a relationship with God, but I want to. That I, that I want to take that step of faith today. And so if that's you, here's, some, here's what you can do. You can pray something like this and you can repeat after me quietly to yourself or however you want to do it. But you can pray something like this. Jesus, please forgive me. I know that I've sinned. I've made mistakes. I've messed up. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and dying on the cross for my sin, though, in my place. Jesus, I, I believe that you're the son of God. I believe that you died on the cross. And I believe that you rose from the dead three days later, conquering my sin for me. I need you to save me today. Make me new in you. And so, with nobody looking around but me, if you prayed that prayer just now, would you just put your hand up in the air? Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Praise God. So, in the room and you would just say that who, who is God trying to extend his grace to in your life through you? If you've already received that grace, who is he trying to extend that grace to in your life through you? I would encourage you, write that person's name down and start praying for them. Jesus, we are so, so, so amazed by your grace. We are amazed that, that you would go to such lengths, that you would go to such depths to rescue us, redeem us, and make us right in relationship with you. That, that you would love us with such great love show us such great mercy as undeserving as we all are as, as undeserving as, as as anyone yet you loved us anyway Jesus help us to live our lives in light of what you have done for us in light of your grace in light of your love for us Help us to be conduits of grace this week as we go out of here. 
We need you. We need you. We need you. In Jesus' name.